encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the first chapter that records Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It also occupies chapters 6 and 7. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a description of Christian character. Let's read that. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And today we're going to focus our attention the entire time on blessed are the poor and blessed are those who mourn. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me remind you again that the description that we have here of the Christian character is a description that ought to be true of every Christian. So this is not just the, the description of a few super saints. This is the way every Christian, male or female, old or young, is to be. None of these, uh, none of these come naturally. So today we're going to be considering blessed are those who mourn. There are some people who seem to have a a, a natural tendency towards melancholy or towards depression. That's not the kind of mourning that receives uh, the, the pronouncement of the Lord's blessing here. So there are some people who are just naturally vivacious in spirit. There are other people who are more subdued in spirit and tend to take the gloomy outlook on things. And uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about something that is natural. So every Christian is to be like this, and every Christian is to manifest every one of these characteristics. So uh, all of us are to be poor in spirit. All of us are to be mournful. All of us are to be meek, and so on through the list of the, the seven uh, characteristics upon which Jesus pronounces a blessing. As I mentioned last week, these are called the Beatitudes because the word blessed in Latin uh, sounds like beatitude. So uh, that, that's why these are called the beatitudes. If we were just using English, we would say the blessings, the blessings of the character that, that Jesus describes. So every Christian is to be like this. Every Christian is intended to manifest every one of these characteristics. None of them are natural, and many of these, in fact, all of these, when properly understood, are held to be undesirable by the world, maybe even ridiculous or contemptible. So that it sounds a little ridiculous 
to say blessed are those who mourn because the word blessed can be translated happy, in which case you're saying happy are the sad, happy are those who mourn, which uh, is at least paradoxical if not contradictory. Uh, so none of, these, none of these things are natural and uh, so also before I get into a description of <clears throat> what it means to mourn, why they are blessed and how we can become this way. Those are the three points of the sermon this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to include examples uh, in, uh, in the description of what it means to mourn. So last week, examples was a separate category, but this week I'm going to include examples in the description of what it means to mourn. Before I get into <clears throat> those three main points, though, let me say it's important that you don't come away saying that it is a desirable thing that you should constantly be sad. I think there are some misunderstandings of the Christian life that the more holy one is, then the more pessimistic his outlook is on life. Or that uh, the more holy you become, the less likely it is that someone is going to catch you laughing or smiling. <clears throat> As I've told you before, there is an appropriate place for brokenness and sadness in the Christian life. But brokenness is a nurse who works in the office of Dr. Joy. So the sadness here is pronounced, it's blessed. Why are they blessed? Because they shall be comforted. And so there, there are times when it is appropriate for us to experience the, the sort of mourning that Jesus uh, pronounces a blessing on here. There's times for that. But that's not supposed to be the, the keynote of your life, that you, you are a, a persistently, unbrokenly sad person. <clears throat> and uh, also, uh, there, are, there are ways that we mourn naturally that Jesus is not talking about here. So let me give you a couple of examples. So I'm already starting to get into the first point of the sermon. What does it mean to mourn? What does it mean to mourn? And so let me start off with saying, not this. So it's not the kind of natural sadness that uh, you might feel at the death of a loved one. So this past week, many of you know, I, I attended a funeral in Moorhead, Kentucky of a, a cousin that, uh, that I, I loved, especially as a young man. We haven't had much fellowship in, in years uh, recently. But, but Max sent me a text message expressing his condolences, and then he included this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And uh, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the expression, but that is not an appropriate application of this, of this particular. So that's, that's not the kind of mourning, this is not the kind of mourning that someone feels, but I mean, he's just a poor, ignorant, white child, what do you expect? <laughs> He's got a great attitude, or I would not possibly tease him this way in front of everyone. We all love you, Max, and appreciate, appreciate your ministry and your maturity. Uh, and then, uh, so it's, it's not the sort of sadness that you feel uh, when, you've, when your dog dies or when, when a loved one dies. That's not the sort of uh, mourning that Jesus is talking about here. 
In fact, as we'll see in the sermon, I don't think that's even what caused Jesus to weep at the tomb, at the tomb of Lazarus. So, Will, that may pique your interest for something that's coming a few minutes down the road. But, uh, so it's, it's not the kind of mourning that anyone would feel at the death of a loved one or the, at the ruination of something that they prized highly. Uh, there's a family that stayed with us this weekend as they, they came to bring their child and drop her off at, uh, at college. And uh, <clears throat> last night after having dropped her off, then the mother was talking about how that she just cried and cried all day that uh, you know, they had to leave, leave their daughter and uh, they will not see her all, every day as they have been accustomed to seeing her. That's not the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about. It would have been inappropriate for me to say at that time, well, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So it's not, it's not those natural kinds of mourning. So what is it? In summary, it is, a, it is a sadness about sin and the wreckage that sin has caused. It is a sadness about sin. It logically follows being poor in spirit. Last week we saw Jesus say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize that they are beggars. Well, what has made us so beggarly? What has made us so beggarly is our sin. And so Jesus pronounces, blessed are those who have a, an appropriate view of sin so that it makes them sad. That kind of sadness is going to result in comfort. Now, as we think about the sadness that sin causes, let's divide it into these three categories. First of all, there is a way that it is appropriate for us to mourn over sin in ourselves. That's the first category. And then secondly, we mourn over sin in others. And then thirdly, we mourn over uh, the, the misery that is in the world as a result of sin. So first of all, we mourn over the effects of sin in ourselves. And uh, so we see that, that sin has separated us from God, and that makes us sad. And so you see... This is, a, this is a description of Christian character because it is only Christians who have the real capacity for feeling sad about being separated from God. What comes before this morning is that we have seen that God is someone that we want to have fellowship with, someone that we want to be friends with. We have begun to like Him, at least, and we want him to like us. And then we see that there is this sin in us that has the potential to interfere with that relationship. And so <clears throat> this is a kind of sadness that occurs at the commencement of the Christian life. So at, at the very beginning when the Lord reveals himself to us and our hearts are uh, attracted to him, then we become aware of uh, the things that he will find displeasing in us, and it makes us sad. <clears throat> and it results in repentance. And repentance unto life 
Here's the way the catechism defines repentance unto life. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief, there it is, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. But a couple things in that very wonderful definition that I'm emphasizing now is that there is an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. We see that and we think, oh, I want that. I want that. I want to have that kind of peaceful relationship with God where I don't feel like he's upset with me. But then I've got this, these sins and he hasn't exaggerated the enormity of my sins. I see it myself. And I'm grieved about this because it interferes with something that I very much want. So in my pastoral prayer, if you were paying attention, I admired God and invited you to join with me in admiring God and appreciating Him, not just for His mercy, but also for His wrath and for His justice. And that wrath is a, is a significant component in drawing us to the Lord, fleeing from our sins and fleeing from the wrath to come. We don't want to go to hell, and so we want to listen to what God has to say to, uh, to make sure that we're not going to go to hell. But then after we are converted, we no longer have that terror of hell that is driving our spiritual life. But instead, it is a fear of incurring the displeasure of the God that we love. And so uh, we, we dread his discipline, but even if he never disciplined us, we would still be sad because it has interfered in our, our relationship with our Father. One of my very favorite children's books is Little Britches by Ralph Moody. And uh, I see, have you, have you read Little Britches? And I, I know I recommend it to the Winfrey children, they read Little Britches. If you're looking for a really good book for your 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old children to read, Little Britches by Ralph Moody is a really good book. It's a story of a, a little boy whose family moved to Colorado in the early 1900s uh, when it was mostly horse and buggy days. And, uh, but he... He especially, the little boy, the little boy, his name's Ralph, uh, it's autobiographical, and he tells about his relationship with his father, and he really loved and admired his father. Well, one time his mother had bought some baker's chocolate uh, for a, a special season, maybe for Christmas, I don't remember why she had bought the chocolate, but this baker's chocolate was, was wrapped up in a box in the barn. And Ralph knew that it was there, and he just couldn't get that chocolate off of his mind. And so he would, he would go out there, and he just figured, if I, just, if I take the sharp axe and I shave off just a little bit of that chocolate, no one will notice that it's gone. And so he plans how he's going to do this, and he waits till everyone's asleep, and he goes out there to the barn, and he gets the axe, and he unwraps that chocolate, and he starts to shave a little bit off, and behind him he hears, Son, what are you doing? It was his father. And he describes how 
how mortified he was. Not that he was going to get a spanking. I don't even remember if he got a spanking. Uh, neither does Willow. <laughs> so she does. I don't remember if he got a spanking, but if he did, then he made the point. It wasn't the spanking that hurt so much as that I had disappointed my father. And his dad had said to him, Son, I thought we were partners. And if you're going to be my partner, then I've got to be able to trust you. And even though he's a very manly little boy, as I recall the story, he just buries his face into his, his father's waist and throws his arms around him and just cries because he has disappointed his father. That's the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here. Blessed are those who feel that way about their relationship with God that they don't want the least little thing to come between them and their Father. So we, we mourn for sin in ourselves because of the interference that it brings into our relationship with our Father. We also mourn because of the wreckage that it causes in our own lives. And this is not just for people who have wasted their lives in uh, alcohol or drug abuse or, or some, something like that. You, you gain a sense of sin that makes you think, if I had not had that problem, and if I were not still struggling with this problem, my life might have been or could be so much more different. Across the fields of yesterday, he sometimes comes to me, a little boy just fresh from play, the boy I used to be. And yet he smiles so wistfully once he has crept within. I wonder if he hopes to see the man I might have been. Now that poem was written by someone who said, I, I've, I've not taken advantage of the opportunities that were afforded me in the way that I ought to have. And I don't know what was, what was interfering with the poet that had caused him to know that he had not turned out the way that his little boy self would have expected him to be. But there was something. And when, when we look at sin and the sin that we have been guilty of and we think of how it shaped us and molded us and, and sometimes made us come to Christ just so late in life and we think of all those wasted years and it causes us to mourn. I think the psalmist must have been feeling something like this when he said in Psalm 25, Remember not the sins of my youth. Oh God, I remember them. I remember them, but Lord, please don't hold them to my account. Remember not the sins of my youth. Oh my God, I trust in Thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. And then as we reflect back on the way that sin has influenced us, we're still thinking about sin in ourselves and mourning over it. Not only do we see the wreckage that sin has caused in our own lives, but we can also see the way that sin in our lives adversely influenced the people that we were around. I mean, that fit of anger, that fit of sinful anger. What did you say and what did you do? Words that can never be taken back. Hurts that may last forever. You think about that and you think, oh, I'm sad about that. 
I think about some of the, the orneriness, to put it mildly. No, let me say it. I think of some of the sinfulness that I engaged in as a young man when I had a lot of influence over my peers. And for some of them, I influenced them to go into, into sinful ways. God had mercy on me and he saved me at age 14, but I look back on some of their lives and see how badly they have gone. And some of those people are dead. And I can think of a friend who spent his, his life wasted in alcoholism. And I was instrumental in introducing him to using alcohol. Or, or, or just the way that, you, that I behaved. The way that you behaved around people that, that may have set them on a course that has resulted in them going farther and farther away from God. And I think about that and I think, I am grieved about that. I'm sad about that. We, when we're thinking about being sad for sin in ourselves, we, we're sad because of the wreckage that we have caused in our own lives. We're sad for the, the wreckage that we've caused in the lives of others. But most of all, because of the way that it has interfered with our relationship with the Lord. But blessed are those who mourn. When you're sad about sin and when you're sad enough about sin, then you'll do something about it. I, now, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let me save that for why are they blessed, for they shall be comforted. But that's just where we're going with this. So first of all, we're grieved over sin in ourselves. But I said a second category is that we're grieved over sin in the lives of others. Now this is Jeremiah when he, he says, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were fountains, that I might weep day and night for the slain among the daughter of my people. And I don't think he was talking about dead bodies lying in the street. He goes on to describe the this, this spiritual separation from God, which is death. So he's, so he's so moved with compassion for people. The Apostle Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for those of my own race, the people of Israel. That's the sort of thing. You're sad over what sin is doing in the lives of others. You're sad. You know, there's a place for anger. There is a place for righteous anger. But I hope that one of the things that we take away from this sermon this morning is that anger is not always the right response and it is rarely the appropriate first response. <laughs> I think that the Lord is cultivating in us the kind of character that helps us to see things from God's perspective. So that when we see people doing bad things, that our first inclination is not, that's going to cause great trouble for me. But our first response is, that is so sad for them. They are, they are hurting themselves. David says in Psalm 119, rivers of water run down my eyes because they do not keep your law. 
You know, I've said that this is a, this is a characteristic that is at least planted in seed form in every one of us. But it certainly is a seed that needs to be cultivated and protected. Because mourning is usually not our first response when we know people who are doing bad things, wasting their lives, especially if it adversely affects us. Our first response is probably not mourning, and it probably needs to be much more than it is. So we mourn over sin in ourselves. We mourn over sin in others and, the, and uh, the, the, the wreckage that it's causing in their lives. And then the third category, blessed are those who mourn, is we mourn over the state of sin in the world and the misery that it has brought about in the world. So I'm talking about things like, like sickness. If there were not sin in the world, there wouldn't be sickness. I'm talking about things like death. Talking about things like child abuse and uh, wrecked marriages and uh, even natural disasters that have been imposed on the world as a result of sin. That we look at this and we think, this is not the way that it's supposed to be, and it makes me sad. When we see corruption in government, I think our first response is, wow, those. Those slimy, dishonest politicians. But maybe our first response needs to be more, look at what sin has done in the world. I told you that I would get back to Jesus uh, weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. and So let's look at Jesus weeping outside the tomb of Lazarus. Why is he crying there? And perhaps the first response that we have is, well, he was sad over the death of his friend. But he had gone there specifically for the purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. If you read the first part of John chapter 11, he told his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Jesus knew he was going there and he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he arrives at the tomb. Uh, Martha comes to meet him. Mary comes to meet him. They go to the tomb. Uh, and, then, and then the Bible says Jesus wept. So if he was not weeping because his friend was dead, and we've ruled that out because he's just getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, then why is he weeping? I think he's weeping because he, he looks at this, all of this sadness and he thinks this is all because of sin. This is not the way that things were supposed to be. And it filled him with grief. And I think that's also uh, what we read about in Luke chapter, uh, the chapter from Luke that we read. I can't remember the exact place where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. That uh, this, you, you had such potential, but now there's not just one particular person that he's picking out, but just the general status of things that have come about as a result of sin. And so... Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn over sin in themselves. Blessed are those who mourn over sin in others. Blessed are those who mourn over the condition of sin in the world and the pain and suffering that it has brought about. Now, why are they blessed? Why are they blessed? And let's work our way through those same three categories again. Those who mourn over sin in themselves 
will be comforted because they will seek a remedy from God. So this is not the kind of mourning that results in despair. You know, despair is when you think you have no hope and there's no point in carrying on or doing anything. This is the kind of mourning that says, well, what's to be done about it? Now, I think that one of the primary functions of sadness is to make us stop doing the thing that is making us sad. And I, there are people who need uh, medications to help them rise out of depression, but I think that there are some people who are experiencing depression because they keep doing something that they should not be doing, and it is resulting in their being depressed. And so, I don't, I don't want to heap unnecessary guilt on anybody in here who needs medication to, to function and needs medication because of a systemic kind of depression. What I'm saying is that there are some times when spiritual things that you're doing that are wrong are causing you to be sad all the time, and you should stop doing those things. When someone comes to me and uh, they, they talk about depression, if they're a Christian, probably within the first five minutes, I'm going to say, what's your devotional life look like? Are you reading the Bible regularly? What is, uh, what's your prayer life look like? If it's someone that I, not from our church and I don't know whether they're faithful in church attendance, I'm going to ask them about that. Do you have Christian friends? Uh, what kind of music are you listening to? Uh, you know, what, what do you do for recreation? I'm just going to ask them questions like that because those often are the cause of a deep sadness that comes especially over a child of God who should be reading his Bible, who should be praying, who should be making a wise use of his time, who should be cultivating relationships with Christian friends who will support and encourage him. And so uh, the blessedness that Jesus pronounces on, on those who are sufficiently sad so that they turn away from the thing that is causing them to be sad. Repent. With grief and hatred, turn from your sin unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now let's apply that same principle to the second category. We've seen that if you're sad enough, you'll do something about it. You'll run to God for relief. But if, you, if you're sad about sin and other people, then I think that that is going to prompt you to do what you can to correct the problem in others so that people who need to hear the gospel, if you're sad enough about it, you'll share the gospel with them. People who are wrecking their lives through sin, if you're sad enough about it, you're going to make it a matter of prayer. You're going to pray for them and see if there are things that you can do to help them along with praying to them and along with witnessing to them. And uh, I think that even, even if the Lord does not convert the person that you're praying for and the person that you're witnessing to, that there is still a blessing that the Lord bestows on those who are obedient and uh, who, in love, reach out to those whose lives are being wrecked by sin. And then, what about that third category, blessed are those who mourn, if, with their mourning about the condition of sin in the world and, and the sickness and the death? 
I think that the comfort that is going to come to us is twofold. First of all, there is an encouragement as we see the gospel of Jesus Christ becoming increasingly influential throughout the world. And uh, there are evidences of that. I know that there are dark, dark times and that sometimes it just seems like all we see is the sickness and the death and the corruption and so on. But there are also very hopeful signs uh, and, and manifestations, very hopeful manifestations that the gospel of Jesus Christ is having a great influence in the world. And, uh, and we pray that it will continue to do so. So that's one avenue of comfort, is seeing the success of the gospel. But a second avenue of comfort is that we know that there is a day that is coming when all things are going to be made new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And uh, that, that prospect of the hope that is stored up for us in heaven influences the way that we live now. What's the difference between faith and hope? So I've talked a good bit about faith. Faith is believing what God has said, especially when the only reason you have for believing it is because God has said it. Faith is persuasion of truth based on testimony. What is hope? Hope is a subcategory of faith. Hope is believing what God has said about the future and then cooperating with the means that he has prescribed for bringing about that desirable future. By faith, we believe what God says about the future. Our hearts are inflamed with the desire for it. And then we cooperate with the means that God has prescribed for bringing it about. And, and so the hope for heaven is not something that leaves us unaffected now, it influences the way that we live now. It helps us to look at the trials of this life from a perspective of all of this is temporary. It helps us to see the trials of life as all of these things are under the control of a sovereign God who is ruling the universe through Jesus Christ, and he is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is in control of all of this, and as mysterious as it may be to me right now, God is bringing it ultimately for the good of his people, the glory of Christ, and it's going to be result in a new heavens and a new earth. And uh, when Paul begins... Uh, his letter to the Colossians, he says, We always rejoice when we pray for you, or, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth. So the Colossians were very loving. They were very faithful in Jesus Christ. But it was connected to this forward-looking hope that they had that God is going to take care of everything. And so those who mourn over the sinfulness of the world can take comfort in knowing that God is using it all for His glory, for the good of His people, and that one day He is going to, uh, he's going to make all things right. So we first of all ask the question, and I've sought to answer it, what does it mean to mourn? Secondly, why are the mournful comforted? And now thirdly, how can we become more like this? Well, I think that mourning is not something that you deliberately seek. 
I don't think that you just say to yourself, I need to make myself sad. But this sadness that we've been talking about comes as a result of enjoying God and approving what God approves and disapproving what God disapproves of in ourselves, in others, and in the world. So I think that the real key to becoming mournful and receiving the comfort that the Lord describes here and pronounces a blessing upon is that you are so in love with the Lord that the things that pain His heart also pain your heart. That you are thinking with God about what is what is important. You're thinking with God about the way things ought to be and that you're sad when things are not that way. But uh, to end up where I began, the goal of all of this is not that you go around with a dark cloud over your head and let everyone know how sad you are. Fasting is a means that can help you to cultivate uh, an appropriate mourning that Jesus talks about here. But Jesus says when you fast... Don't go around with a sad face. Wash your face. Anoint your head with oil. That was what they would do in those days to show that I'm trying to, to look nice and, and uh, not, look like, not look like I'm all sad. And uh, so the goal here is not to, to try to impress people with how sad you are about sin in your life and sin in other people's lives and the, the terrible way that things are going in the world. Uh, that's, that's not the goal here. The goal is that we might enjoy the comfort that the Lord gives. When people repent of sin and receive Jesus Christ, then you move from under God's wrath to sitting at the table, at, at, God's, at God's table. Even now, it's not just something in heaven. But even now, through Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God and our sins are forgiven in Him. And... Uh, and so the great goal is that we might enjoy God and think with God uh, the, the way that he does. All right, Max, come and lead us in a song. I suggested the song that Max is going to lead us in, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed. Alas, you probably never say that during the week. Alas, I forgot to start the car, and now it will be cold. It's an old expression of sadness, though. Alas... And did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? And then I hope that we've got the stanza where, where the, the writer, Isaac Watts, says, uh, he, he describes the crucifixion. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut His glories in when Christ the mighty Maker died for man the creature's sin. In the same way, thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But then the final stanza concludes, but drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. So you are not going to earn your way into God's favor through being sad. Drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away is all that I can do.